This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra very special guest. His name is Bill McBride. He is the founder and runs the website Calculated Risk, uh, one of, if not the best economic blogs out there, according to pretty much everybody. So this was not my typical podcast. In the regular interview, what I'm supposed to be doing is asking questions and listening to what the guest responds and asking follow-up questions and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yes. But here's the thing. I know Bill since the first day he started blogging. We were exchanging emails. I was linking to him. I, I, could, I think I could honestly say I linked to Calculator Risk before anybody had any idea who they were. And um, I have been using his research and his charts for the better part of, I don't know, uh, 10, 11 years. And we have always had an email relationship. I think we had a couple of telephone conversations, but I had never met Bill before until the night before we recorded this podcast. We went to dinner and I purposefully, with with eight people, I purposefully did not speak to Bill and told him, I'm not going to talk to you until the two of us are in the studio. And so this is supposed to be an interview, but it's not. It's it's supposed to be a podcast Q&A, but it really is a genuine conversation between two people who know each other for a decade and really have never sat down and had a conversation before. So if you're looking for the usual Q&A that, that I try and provide each week on the show, this isn't it. This is me and Bill just shooting the breeze. It's two guys who know and respect each other for a long time and- I found it illuminating and fascinating. Um, there's probably too much of me in it relative to what should be, uh, so I'll apologize for that in advance. But hey, if you've ever known someone for what seems like forever, but never met them, when you finally get to meet them, there's going to be a lot of uh, back and forth. And uh, truth be told, I thought the conversation was fascinating. I'm biased, so let me stop babbling because you'll hear enough of that throughout the the rest of the interview. Uh, with no further ado, my two-hour bull session with Bill McBride of Calculated Risk. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I have a very special guest. He is somebody I have known for quite a long time. Let me give you a quick background on Bill McBride, who is the proprietor of Calculated Risk. He launched the website in 2005. The idea behind it, let's put simple, opinion-free analysis and charts about economic data out in public where everyone can easily access it and understand it. Uh, it has been called the best of the economic blogs by such luminaries as Paul Krugman, The Wall Street Journal, Business Week Time, pretty much everybody puts the blog in its list of top 20 or top 50 or top 100 or top 10 blogs. Uh, Bill's background is uh, he has an MBA from uh, University of California, Irvine, with a background in management, finance, and economics. And he had been running a public company or involved in a public company in the 1990s when he retired and was 
looking for something to do. Um, Bill McBride, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. Let's start with your background. So you're, you're running a public company. You're one of the co-founders of a medical devices company. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I was the uh, head of R&D. So, so tell us about this. What, what was this company about? Ultimately, it got sold to a well, larger we, company? Yeah, well, we started it in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were designing cardiac telemetry. Which uh, is? Uh, it's, it's like a little box that you wear on you in the hospital that connects to the, picks up your ECG mm-hmm. and sends it to a central monitor in the hospital. It's for in-hospital use. Did you have a background in, in medicine? I, I, or? Had, I had worked previously at a telecommunications company. So it was and, more technology than medical. Yes, and my, my undergraduate degree is in chemistry. So mm-hmm. I, you know, it was kind of a mix of things. Right. And so uh, what we did is we um, we kind of revolutionized that industry because in the 80s was when everybody was making the transition to digital in a lot of different areas. Uh-huh. And we used some of the cell phone technology to make the first digital cardiac telemetry. So, and, so when someone gets an EKG in a hospital or the monitoring? Um, uh, well, you know, if you're in... Particular wards in the hospital, um, post cardiac uh, surgery. Mm-hmm. If they, once they like to take you off the the uh, bedside monitor and put you on a little telemetry unit, so you can get up and walk around and still be monitored. Okay. And so that's the use for it. There's other. We also pick up other parameters in addition to ECG, and then we send it back to a central monitor with with that. Then they can have a nurses station. They can monitor the people walking around the hospital. So what happened with this company in the 90s? Oh, well, we, we, we grew very quickly. Uh, we've, we designed uh, telemetry for most of the major medical device companies. They started using ours under their own name. And then uh, we took it public in 96 mm-hmm. and then uh, sold it to GE Medical. There later you go. In the and at that point, you are uh, gainfully unemployed. That's correct. As one, one of the founders. So... The site launches in 05. What led you to say, I have an idea. Let's analyze economic data. <laughs> well, economics is always a hobby for me. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I specialized that in, when I got my MBA. That was my focus. Um, it, you know, I in the early 2000s, I had a few things that I was doing. In 2004, I remember thinking, what is a blog? And I think I stumbled across yours, <laughs> the right. big picture. Uh, if, if you remember Angry Bear when it was written sure. by the three PhD economists. Yes. And so that kind of inspired me. I said, well, you know, to really understand that, I'll just do one. So I'll, I'll start a blog, but I'm not going to write it about politics like most of the blogs I saw. Right. And I, what I want to focus on is housing uh, because of what I was seeing in Southern California. It had just gone off the rails. Yeah, you know, I, I was at the gym one day and I was talking to this attractive young lady who was a uh, secretary uh, mm-hmm. for the Hurley T-shirt company. Oh, sure. Yeah. I know Hurley Surf and it, it, yeah, all that uh, exactly. fun stuff. And, and uh, one day she came in and she goes, Bill, I just bought a condo. Now, this condo she bought, she bought for 400 and some thousand dollars. And she had already told me she was making, she had moved up this a little. This is an 04. This is an 04. And she was, she was probably making, you know, she had, had gotten up to about 40000 a year in income. So at Hurley. that's a, forget the old rule of two times. That's your ten, ten, to, ten, ten, to one, 10 to one with no money down. Mm-hmm. And so after she told me the story, I said, well, how can you afford that? When she started telling me about the teaser rate she had for the first year or two, and I said, well, what happens when that, that comes due? And she goes, well, I'll just either, you know, my either I will have more income or I'll sell the unit. And I thought, well, gee, if this is happening all over the place, there's going to be no one to sell it to. Right. So I went home that day and started calling you know, some mortgage bankers I knew. And I said, is this really possible? Oh, yeah. 
you know, you don't have to have, you know, anything, no income, you know, the ninja loans, no income, no job, you know, she, no was, she was, yeah, no assets. She was, she was a great client. She had a job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so you launched the blog and you decided to do something a little different than most blogs. Calculated risk is fairly opinion free every now and then, and it's much more rare than the average blog, you'll come out and say, this is my opinion about X, Y, Z. I mean, that's like an annual event. <laughs> Most of the time, you're just saying, here's the data, here's what it means, here's well, the well, I do, you know, I do slip in a sentence or two here and there about what I think is happening with that data. And then every once in a while, I, I will, like you're saying, write a, a overview piece of where I think we are in the economy and where we're going. You know, back in, in 2005, one of the things I focused on was uh, I was actually calling up regulators and asking them why they're not doing anything. So I, I, I you know, I, and I would write about how, well, gee, the regulators are not doing their job, and here's why. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Bill McBride. He is the founder and chief author of the highly regarded economics blog, Calculated Risk. Uh, let's jump right back into this. You've developed an expertise in, in mortgages and housing and, and real estate economics. Was that something that you had done in a previous life, or is it just you gravitated it towards that because you were in Southern California and real estate in the early 2000s had just gone insane in California? Well, it really is a combination of things. My dad was in real estate. And oh, he was? He, and he was a builder. Oh, no kidding. My so, mother was a real estate agent, yeah, so, I, so it was always supper time conversation. Did you have... That sort of experience. Yeah, well, I, I I at least saw what he was doing and and chatted with him about it. Uh, you know, after I started my career, I was more science and technology oriented, but uh, I, I always have been interested in real estate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I and and you know, I had that little bit of a background of what they went through, and I saw my dad go through the ups and downs. Where where was he a builder? What part of the country? In, in down in San Diego. Ah, so that was really an interesting and fast growing. But your dad was in the Navy. Right. There's a huge naval base in San. In fact, I think that's, that's how we ended up the there. That makes sense. <laughs> yes. Coronado Island in that right. whole area. Right. So we went from the Navy to San Diego to San Diego and housing. So post war, that had to be just a huge boom over there. Oh the, yeah, San Diego was booming the whole time. I, I you know when, for, I, we moved there when I was five, and so you know I, I was there until I went away to college. It was boom time. Uh, back in the it was the 60s and 70s sure. and and but even then there were big waves cycles y yes you could you could see the ups and downs there were times when my dad was clearly struggling financially you mm -hmm. know luckily my mom was a, a elementary school principal so so she had a good steady income uh, so they could offset each other but, so so how do you respond to the comment that was everywhere back in the early 2000s you know, we've never had a downturn in the price of uh, housing in the United States. Well, well, first of all, that's not true. It, it's utterly false. There have been repeated examples all the way back to the Great Depression. You know, but one of the things is, if, if you remember, I'm sure you do, back in 2005, is the data wasn't very good or very available, especially on house prices. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had the what's now the FHFA 
right. house price index just based on the Fannie and Freddie mortgages. Right. But we didn't have Case Shiller publicly available or CoreLogic publicly That's available right. or several of the other, you know, Zillow. That was just, that wasn't even somebody's thought yet. Right. You know, and so now we have so much better data. And some of those guys, Case Shiller and CoreLogic, have have published their data back to, to previous times, and you can see those ups and downs. And so the people that were saying there were no ups and downs, there was no real good data for them to, to make that argument. And, and obviously, they had never lived in Southern California because I'd seen the ups and downs in, right. in the house prices. Absolutely. And, and uh, like there was, a, there was a real boom in the 80s. Uh, house prices peaked around 1990 in my area, and they slid all the way till 1996. The, the same exact experience in New York, 1987 crash. Shakes Wall Street a little bit. Alan Greenspan cuts rates. You have a little bit of a a surge in in real estate throughout the 80s, and then it rolled over. If you bought a condo or a co-op in New York in 1989, you did not get back to break even on that purchase price till 1996, plus or minus. And you can see in the charts. But during the Great Depression, we know real estate prices plummeted. And I think it was someone at Columbia, I'm not positive, did a study on Manhattan real estate, and they estimated that real estate prices dropped 70% during the Great Depression. I, I, I mean, how do you just shrug that off in your models? It's it's impossible. I, I never understood why people say real estate prices never go down. I never understood it because there's, there's plenty of evidence. Even though we don't have the data that we have today, there was still plenty of evidence. So, so let's talk about. Uh, I've I've been using the charts and the information you put on calculated. Well, thank you risk too. I appreciate that. For for how long? I mean, it's got to be oh, twelve years probably, uh, ten right? years at least, at least a decade. And I got into a fight with the Wall Street Journal about it was I want to say oh six or oh seven, and they were doing the look. Real estate prices are improving, and the response was. Well, no, it's June. They oh, you're looking at it month over month. You have to look at it year over year. Right. So I grabbed and I brought a copy of it. I'll put it up <laughs> on the site. I grabbed your existing home sales year over year by month. That shows the same seasonality. It it right. You know it it's at its nadir in December and January. It slowly rises throughout the spring, peaks later in the fall, and rolls off. You can't just look at June versus February and say, oh, housing is fine. But that's what a lot of media was doing. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that was one of the issues back in 2005 was the media. I don't think they really knew how to report housing. There were some, there, but to say that people missed it completely is wrong. There were some excellent articles. For sure. And and there were some award-winning articles. And, and uh, Give us, get, name da- some da- names. David uh, Stretfield, at, who was at the LA Times at the time, mm-hmm. now he's the New York Times, he won awards for his housing articles. They were excellent, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I mean, so so there were there were plenty of good articles, but I think they got lost in the bad articles, and and you know, and you know how the balanced media works. The if, classic if, false equivalency. Yeah, if you, and... if you if you if you talk to somebody who was very concerned about housing and could make a good argument on the on making bad mortgages, they would always go talk to somebody. Who, who was impressive background, who would say, oh, and house prices never go down. Right. Uh, there's nothing to worry about, you know. And, and so y- y- I think for the average person who was getting their information that way, it was difficult to see that there was sure. a big problem. Now, I run into people all the time that say, you know, I thought there was something really wrong. So most people in the back of their minds, especially people in areas like, you know, Southern California, Florida, you know, Nevada, mm-hmm. <laughs> they were thinking, I think a lot of people were going, there's something wrong here. How, how much of that is hindsight bias where, but by the of way, course, you, re- it could be. you recall 
the number of people legitimately in print in a verifiable way warning about housing prices there were a handful of people, a handful of us. You were one. Well, you, me, you know, I, I, I know a few other people uh, that were doing uh, it. So. But now every person yeah. I met, oh, of course I knew the housing crisis was about <laughs> to collapse. Well, I, well I, I, just, I just looked at certain data and said this ratio, which has been consistent, home price to median income, cost of renting versus cost of owning, uh, you covered a ton of this stuff. How, how frustrating was it when you saw the train wreck coming but you couldn't really convince the average person that, hey, something wicked this way comes. Well, you know, I I, I was really focused on trying to to fo- to get the regulators to pay attention to it, and and that was a very frustrating process because they because they were paying attention to it, but they couldn't do anything. Their hands were tied, and um, you know the the regular person. Uh, you know, I started my blog. I was writing. I was writing for friends and relatives, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I, I was mostly just saying, hey, you know, if they asked me, I would tell them, don't buy, <laughs> please don't buy anything, you know. Uh, I, you know, it's, but, you know, you put a, a blog out there in public and so, all of a sudden people start reading it. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Bill McBride. He is the founder of the Calculated Risk website, lauded by everyone from Business Week, Wall Street Journal, uh, New York Times as the single best economics blog there is. Um, I put out a request on The Big Picture as well as on Twitter uh, if any of your readers had questions for you. And I got a long list of stuff. Let's jump into some of them. I think some of these are really interesting. First question. You are one of the few bloggers who still maintains a comment section, and it's a mess. Sorry, but I think that's honest. Why maintain comments? That's a great question. And, and uh, you know, comments early in the blog were unbelievably outstanding. Amazing. Amazing. As a matter of fact, I thought the comments were one of the key elements to the blog. 100%. The, the comments turned more into just a chat session right. about unrelated information off topic off topic trolls spam it, it's gone off the rails yeah well you know it, it beca- npr by the way just killed their comment section yeah this I, past I, week. you know we we do have a um a comment section where people have to uh, register right so they you can't just get the the drive-by commenters right. so the trolling goes down the, but the the it's it's basically off topic most of the time right buzzfeed uh, does this thing now where you can comment but only if you register through Facebook, which is your real identity. So you lose a lot of the really off-the-chain, crazy, uh, racist nonsense. Yeah, you know, the the, um, and we don't have that for the most part. And, and, uh, you know, those people that are racist or or bigoted in some way, we've tried to ban. Right. But the, uh, I keep it because a lot of the old-timers are still there. But they chat more than they right. more than the economic content, and they're kind of friends. So they right. So so you know, I just I, I leave it for them. I if people don't like the comments, then don't don't participate. Don't in the read comments. the comments. Exactly, <laughs> that's my view. And I, I if there's you know if there's ever you know the anti-Semitic things, I ban so many people from I, that. Well, that's, it gets to be a giant curation time suck. It's yeah. so complicated. I had some people write me when I killed comments on the big picture, which is years ago. Um, well, thanks for the site, but I'm done. If you don't have comments, you don't, you don't understand how many hours a week it is to maintain the comments 
and, and you guys don't see the really horrific comments, and it just got to be a total drag. But that was a lost era. I thought the comments were fantastic. On, on You could read a really interesting article and then spend a half hour reading some really smart, insightful feedback on that article. There, well, yeah, I'm sure some of your commenters were outstanding. Many of mine were. Uh, one of the, one of the, I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, my co-blogger Tonta at some point. I met Tonta through the comments. Oh, really? Yeah, she she showed up and was commenting, and every time she would either correct something I had said if I said something about the mortgage industry, uh-huh. and I would call my mortgage banker friends, and they go, "Oh, yeah, she's right." <laughs> <laughs> I, so I instantly corrected on my blog, and I'd credit Tonta, and and uh, or she would say, "Hey, yeah, that's you know," she she was really sharp. She knew everything and she was very quick-witted. And so that's how I actually got to know my co-blogger through the comments. That's where I met her. So so let's talk about that. She starts writing for you in... Well, she. this is what happened. And she commented a lot in 2005. Mm-hmm. In 2006, she disappeared mm-hmm. from the comments. About six months later, she reappeared and she told me that she had been diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. had uh, had left her job, uh, and she had stopped commenting because she wasn't able to, and she didn't even think she was going to live. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I then asked her, well, why don't you come and, and write for the blog if you're not working? Because she's working in the mortgage industry. Right. And, uh, and it took me a little convincing, but she started in, I think her first post was in December 2006, Mm-hmm. And uh, almost two years before she passed away. So she was a regular on the site for a while, but and ultimately succumbed to the illness. Yes, but you know she was stunning. Mm-hmm. Uh, before she started writing for the blog, I probably wrote longer pieces, mm-hmm. and then when she showed up, uh, she, she her undergraduate degree was in literature. Right. <laughs> her pieces were brilliant. Uh, they were they they. She, one of her goals, she said, was to make blogs uh, entries could be long and still well read, mm-hmm. which she accomplished. Uh, she would explain mortgage uh, uh, issues in complete detail, and all that stuff still on the blog. Um, and you know, people from the Federal Reserve were were crediting her, and in, in papers they were writing because they were learning from her too. And uh, you know, she was a, a real mortgage banker. She knew the 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 banking, the mortgage banking industry inside and out. You know, she was absolutely terrified, mm-hmm. and 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 she was scared because they were they were all the mortgage industry was pulling back on the risk management side and hey and, there's money to be made yeah we'll they, worry about risk later oh yeah and when you know and and they in the oh, the whole industry changed they went away from the three c's uh-huh. you know where, where you're you're looking at credit and collateral and and capacity to pay and we just went to fico scores i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio my guest today is bill mcbride he is the founder and proprietor of the highly rated Calculated Risk Economics blog, well-regarded by many people. You don't have a PhD in economics. You don't have a – you have an MBA. How did you go from essentially a medical devices uh, company founder to one of the leading lights in in financial economics writing? Well, I don't don't know if I'm a leading light, but uh, but it's very nice all those things people have said about me. But, you know, I – I've had always had an interest in economics. I've always had an interest in housing. Uh, I study hard. <laughs> I I uh, I dig hard to try to understand the data, and uh, and I've I've 
a lot. I've worked with a lot of economists since I started the blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of academic academic economists that uh, that I call friends now. Give us some names. Uh, uh, Jim Hamilton down in sure. San Diego. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, Mark Tama up in Oregon. Another one. Yeah, Terrific. Tim Dewey. Sure. So uh, the, you're you're just named my starting lineup of ec- economists. Right yeah, there. yeah. I mean, so so uh, you know those guys. I chat with I, I chat with several of them all the time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, and you know it's it's so it, it helps me focus on what on what's important in economics and how to understand it, and and I think they like that I really dig through the data and and uh, so it's kind of a mutual thing. So so let's talk a little bit about the state of the U.S. economy. I'm going to throw th- some things out that I hear and see and read online that I question pretty um, significantly, and I want to just get your your feedback on each of these. Um, you know, the recession never ended. The economy is still spiraling downward and, and we're going into a depression. No, well, that's, that's, that's unrealistic, obviously. Um, I mean, employment is up substantially since 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the economy is growing slowly from a GDP perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's driven in my view by two main things. One is for some reason, productivity's down, um, something that I don't think anybody can really control, at least measure productivity. Right. And, but also, and a key thing that's very rarely mentioned is demographics. We've, we've, the prime working age population started decreasing, not, not workforce, but population in about 2010, mm-hmm. and decreased for five or six years, and that's because of all the baby boomers. So if you were born in the 50s or 60s, yeah. that, so let's say you're born in 1950, that would make you 66 today. You're you're thinking about retiring, right? And you're out of the prime working age. You know, as you get past 60, which I can say is happens, you 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 have less energy. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're, oh, you're speaking personally, you or know, are you yeah, speaking? No, I'm talking about myself. <laughs> okay. So so you know, when when you get a little older, you you know, now I'm still doing things, but uh, yeah, I I don't think I'm as excited about uh, spending a, a lot of hours a day working. But uh, you do spend a decent amount of time I, I spend, working. I spend Spend a, a decent amount. You're, you're, Nothing like what I was spending in 2009, but that's that's not age related. That's just crisis uh, crisis related. related. Right. Yeah, you got to be doing two, three, four hours a day. Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. At least you, and, you're what my wife describes as gainfully unemployed. <laughs> right. It's like you would be doing this whether there was money in it or not. And uh, is there money in it? That's a question that people ask. Well. Uh, well, is there money in blogging? Well, first of all, when I started the blog, I didn't take any advertising for mm-hmm. two or three years. I didn't even think about it. So, right. so it really was just a hobby. Uh-huh. Uh, people said, hey, take advertising. And, and so I, I eventually did. Uh, it, it, there's not a whole lot of money in it, mm-hmm. but, but you know, there's, it pays for some nice dinners out. There you go. Yeah, so, so. so it's still more or less a hobby that, that keeps you uh, yeah, I, active. Yes. You know, I, I, I guess I have this thing. I, I promise my readers that I would call or try to call the next recession. Mm-hmm. I said, and you've th- been pretty consistent saying we're nowhere near a recession yeah. anytime. Yeah, so I, I'm gonna say, I, I, I hope to hang around long enough to do that. And, uh-huh. and I don't see one in the near term at all, so I guess I'm gonna be around for a while. Let, let's look at the indicators that you track in order to identify uh, a recession. And you track everything from rail car Waitings to to ships coming into the LA port. It's not just GDP employment. You look at a, a ton of stuff. What what are some of your favorite indicators to look at? Well, uh, to me, the the housing, uh, new home sales, housing starts. I always start there. 
Mm-hmm. You know, employment, of course, is the big, the big dog. So, right. So, I mean, if employment went negative for several months in a row, I would really be. Now, watching. I heard from some political candidate that all of the employment data is fake. Well, I, I, I think I don't think there's probably a better organization than the BLS as far as telling us, being transparent on how they do their work. They they publicly announce all the changes. It's always you academically can, driven. You can go to their website. You can understand exactly what they do what they don't do, mm-hmm. and and how, how any changes which have been minor over the years in how they gather data. Uh, I, I, so they're completely transparent. And you now, can call them up and ask them questions. Oh, yeah, and they're, and they're, very, they're very helpful. So the, 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 it's possible to disagree that, oh, well, there, there's a different way to measure it, but to say that they're doing it fake is, is outrageous. And I there's mean, uh, outrageous. Yeah. There's, there was, what, 3,000 statisticians, PhDs, economists, et cetera. Could you really fake something and not have that leak out somewhere? They're not all from one party or the other. It, well, it seems like an impossible claim. It is. It is impossible. And and there are uh, independent ways to measure some of that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it looks good, too. You know, wh- whether you look at ADB employment, uh, which uh-huh. is a private measure. Right. Uh, uh, they're on it also. They're, they're part of the They're, they're part, part of the, the conspiracy. Right, yeah. right. No, no, those That's n- the, always the answer you get. It's, th- those, uh, those numbers are very, very good. And, and uh, you know, do, do they describe everything? No. The model and, isn't perfect by any stretch but, of the but, imagination. But, but, the, but the methodology is transparent. So you can go in and you, it's the same as like new home sales or, or housing starts. You can go and see what they count, what they don't count, you know, how they add mm-hmm. them in. Uh, you know, it, that was very important during the crisis uh, because you had to see, you had to see like a new home sales, how they canceled. Right. You know, they handled- Canceled the, contract was a whole separate- Yeah, and they handled it completely, completely different than the public companies. So, mm-hmm. and so you could, you could kind of say, well, gee, you know, they're going to catch up on this and they're following. And, right. and uh, you know, the public companies basically have to, they, here's what, here's what we got. They're reporting net sales. Right. Where the, the uh, Census Bureau is tracking a house and then if it gets canceled later, then they take it out. So it, it's, it's, uh, but those sales that they originally reported is still there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's, so it's, it's important to understand that methodology. Right now, that, that's irrelevant because uh, everything's tracking. Right. You know, the, the, you know, if you follow the home builders and you follow the, the new home sales, they're pretty much tracking. So let, let's talk a little more about housing. Uh, my friend Jonathan Miller, who's a highly regarded uh, appraiser and, and data assembly on housing, has been talking for a good couple of years about the problem with no equity and low equity homeowners. And it sort of gums up the chain of purchases. In other words, hey, we're in a starter home. Up, oh, we have a, a second kid on the way. Let's sell this house, move up to a, a four bedroom. The people selling that house move up to a larger house, and those people move up to the big mansions. But as long as the people at the bottom starter home are, are kind of stuck there because they don't have enough equity, the whole system is sort of compromised. And it means that there just isn't enough supply out there. How, yeah, how does well, how does well, that sound? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that uh, that is a problem, and and it, and housing historically always has been this kind of chain reaction. One guy sells, then he can buy, and another sell and buy and sell and buy. And so the situation we're in today is is pretty unique. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's rarely mentioned is is that the reason there's such uh, low inventory, especially at the lower ends, is because of all those investor buying. Sure. Millions and millions of homes. Buy to rent, buy to fix and flip, buy to, yeah, well, to resell. Yeah, the fix and flip doesn't hurt the market, but the-, but the Buy the, to rent. Buy to rent. There's, a, there's millions of homes that were bought to rent. And, at a huge discount, right at the height of the crisis. Yeah, and, and so the, those guys, and, and, and I talked to some of those guys. In, Private equity or, or uh, individual well, investors well, or both? It's a combination. Mm-hmm. You know, I know moms and pops that bought six, eight places. Uh, I, I know some larger investors that bought thousands. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and for the most part, none of them are selling. Really? They, yeah. So they, Now, why is that? Well, okay, if they sell, they have to play capital gains. And then, and, and there's one sure way to make sure you never pay capital gains taxes. Don't have a capital gain. Yeah. So at a, at, that's always to me not a great reason not to yeah, sell. Yeah. But but then where else are they going to put their money? Well, then they have to move it to somewhere else, right? right? And and you know what are you going to do? And the, and those guys, rents have gone up substantially. They were buying these things with cap rates of twelve, fifteen percent when they really? bought them, and the and the rents have gone up dramatically right so on their original money they're just they're just cranking it if they sell it even if they can avoid paying capital gains uh-huh if they sell it and avoid capital gains where do they put their money and get that same return you get one five percent one point five percent on the tenure that's yeah. fantastic yeah. that's yeah. not negative yet it's a positive uh, <laughs> they, so, those the, you know i i know several people personally that own you know, maybe three or eight. They'd rather just get the income. And And they're never going to sell them. We've been speaking with Bill McBride. He is the founder and chief blogger at Calculated Risk. Uh, Be sure and and check out the site, Calculated Risk, for uh, just an incredible slew of economic data, charts, and analysis. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue to discuss all things economic and digital. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your emails and comments. Please write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. This is uh, Barry Ritholtz. Bill, thank you so much for doing this. You know, you Thanks and I- Thanks for having me. My, my pleasure. You and I have been- writing each other no exaggeration it's got to be 10 12 years yes i think we had dinner this week i think that's the first time we met in person is that right that's correct so i i have tons of 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 stories and and anecdotes Uh, there's so many questions to get through and before i get to my standard questions there's there's just there's just so much stuff I, i i have to do um, by the way, before we get to those questions, how are you enjoying your your week in New York? I'm having a great time. The the weather couldn't be nicer. Oh, really, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. You you. It was miserable, ninety and humid <laughs> last week. It's been it's delight- been perfect today. I went for a walk in the Central Park this morning. Very. It's nice. been it's been delightful. So so you're now spending two, three, four hours a day, blogging. Yes. In the midst of the crisis, oh eight, oh nine. How much time were you devoting to the well, site? I was probably spending uh, maybe eight hours a day. Full a full day's work. But but I was up 
you know, at five in the morning uh, and and doing work. And I was, you know, right before I went to bed, I was doing work. Right. And it's uh, not it, it's not nine to five. It's it's all day. It's digital. It's, hours. It, yeah, right. it's 16, 17 hours a day. I did sleep a little. Right. And every once in a while, they have to set my alarm clock for the middle of the night because I knew something crazy was coming. When? Do, oh, really? So you would wake up to, to see. Oh, some especially, data. especially when stuff was coming from Europe. Uh huh. You know, I'd be going, oh, great. <laughs> See, my attitude is always, well, it, it'll be there in the morning. Yes. It'll be there in the morning. And that's my attitude now. When, when did you realize that the site was really catching on? Uh, you know, it kind, it kind of just built. It, 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 it's a boiled it, frog. Yeah, right? it, it, it's it old... happened over time. You know, it was interesting because at first, I'd say the first month, because you see the traffic data, you know, right. I was just sending it to friends and relatives. All those posts now have lots of hits, but that's because people have gone back in time. Years later. You know, uh, maybe in February 2005, uh, Dr. David Alteg of, of sure. Cleveland Fed. Yes. Or Atlanta Fed now, I guess. He stumbled on my blog somehow, mm-hmm. and he mentioned something that I had written. And all of a sudden, my traffic was, you know, 100 readers a day out right. of the blue. 100 and, readers a day. Yeah. Wow. And, and, uh, and I went, wow, what, what happened there? And then something interesting happened is one of those readers was one of the three PhD economists at, right. at Angry Bear. And he called me up and said, hey, could you write a weekly column about housing? Because I was completely focused on housing at the time. Uh-huh. And so I wrote With that. With good reason. Yeah. I wrote that, and within several months, I was up to 2,000 readers a day. Right. And, you know? and what was the peak traffic in 08, 09? Yeah, uh, probably averaged throughout 08 and, and 09, probably 120,000 readers a day. What does it work out to be on a monthly basis? Uh I was probably four million, three, four million readers. Yeah. On, it it on went month. crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. And then it, 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 it I'm more probably, or less I'm pro- cut in half I'm, after that. Yeah, I'm probably forty percent of that now. Right. You know, maybe forty thousand readers a day. So But these are forty thousand important influential readers. Yeah, well they're you know, they're obviously people that are very interested in economics. And we talked a little bit during the broadcast portion about comments. How frustrating is it that comments was once so crucial, so seminal, and now they're just a wreck. Well, uh, you know, I, in general, I don't yeah, mean your comments. Yeah, well, I mean, our, our comments. Since you have to register, uh, it's they're they're okay, but they're they're more clicky, and and they're they're long term people who just talk about off topic subjects. Frequently. Clicky, not with a Q, not not yes. web clicky. Yes, yes, yes. Like like it's groups of people. Chatting yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they 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 have their topics they want to talk about. It's unrelated. It's really it's completely different. When I when in two thousand five two thousand six when I would post something, the topics were on topic. I mean, the comments were on topic. Uh, and I, that, insightful. Yeah, and, and that's relevant. where I met a lot of great people, including my co-blogger. I you know to me I I, I was talking about this a little bit earlier. Is I remember using Yahoo Finance when it first came out. That's right. You'd comment on a company, and the comments are great. It didn't take long since they were all public for that just to go completely downhill and be completely useless. In the 90s, I very vividly so I began as a trader in the in the mid 90s and I very vividly remember stumbling into Yahoo comments and a family member had this huge position in iOmega. It had split 2 for 1, 3 for 1, 2 for 1. What started out as a $10,000 investment was like a $3 million holding. And I remember following the iOmega Yahoo message boards with people driving. I think the factory was in Utah or some crazy thing. Yeah. Driving by the factory on a Sunday, and all of Wall Street is underestimating the the revenue and profit numbers. Hey, the factory parking lot is filled with cars 
on a Sunday night. These guys are working double and triple shifts. Like it was that sort of serious investigation. It was, it was awesome. You and get now, that you get that kind of local color. Somebody knew something about the company, not insider information. Driving by a company, no, not just insider. the parking lot. Yeah, just, somebody. Uh, tell hey, you. that's public, man. Yeah. That's it's it's amazing. So yeah, and and, and, and the only you could get a little bit of that on Twitter now. Uh, so some, and somebody might take a picture of the parking lot. Of course, then you got to, you don't really know if it's real or not. That that's become <laughs> and there's been a lot of scams and yeah. hacks and things. You really have to be careful with yeah. with what you see. You know. Uh, I've talked about this very, very little. I wrote Bailout Nation with my commenters. I would post a 300-word or 400-word thing in the evening that I had written during the day. What do you think about this? Tell me your thoughts. And people would say, have you seen this article in the Christian Science Monitor? Have you Because obviously the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, everybody sees. So you have this huge research team and yes. people making suggestions and comments the golden age of blog comments was unlike anything oh, it was, the media had it, it was ever awesome. seen. You know, it's funny because one of my commenters wrote a fiction book partially in the comments called American Apocalypse. He's a lawyer. <laughs> Unfortunately, he has passed away now. But uh, he, he, it, it became a pretty good seller on Amazon. It, really? And he wrote it in the comments and people would – it was a fiction thing about, you know, if the financial crisis had really gotten bad. Right. I, I mean, t total second-grade depression or worse. And uh, but but you know it, it's just kind of like you and Bell on Nation except for he started it in the comments and it was fun it was kind of fun to that's read that's amazing have you ever gotten invites to speak or or take a meeting with anybody from Treasury Department Federal Reserve House Joint Economics Committee anything along uh, those lines nothing well the Treasury invited me back once mm -hmm. um, but that that was it uh, when you say he invited you back. They, they, they. If I came, I got to, to, you know, meet some senior people. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but I was in California, so it wasn't very right. convenient for me. I, I got the Tim Geithner invite, which I think oh, yeah. was a public relations yes, thing. Yes. Yes. Did you go to that? No. See, I, that's the one I was talking about. And, and did you go to that? No. <laughs> I was in California. It's too far. I and was it, in New York. It was too far because it just smelled like one of those things. Come on in. He'll come in, shake some hands, do a photo op, and why did I travel three hours each way for this? It was. Yes. I politely responded and said, hey, let me know the next time Tim is in New York. I'm happy to meet with him, but I'm not interested in a photo op. And that's that was the sort of outreach trip. Oh, these bloggers are causing us trouble. Let's let's. Did you ever get a sense that you were causing trouble to elected officials? No, I never. Not at I, all. I never felt that at all. I... I uh... No, you know, there there was a time, I think there was a lot of resentment from the media about blogging. Let's talk about that. Um, I used to do this thing, and I know Tanta did something similar, called Read It Here First. In the beginning, when, so I, I launched the big picture in 03, but before that it was a Yahoo GeoCity site, uh, and after 9-11 I had written a piece that kind of had gone viral, so it's like, oh, this internet thing, going to be big one day. And so I would notice the amazing coincidence. You'd write about something, and then a day or a week later it would show up in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Barron's, Business, everywhere, the yes. whole media. Yes. And my initial, well, no one would just steal this. I must have picked something up, and other people from wherever, whatever motivated me to write this, 
So they must have been motivated by the same thing. I don't want to say it was in the ether, but if I'm looking at an economic news release and Bill is looking at an economic news release and a reporter at XYZ paper is looking at that, we're all looking at the same thing. And I assumed it was a coincidence. And that changed in 2004. I wrote a long-form piece called Radio's Wounded Business Model that basically trashed Clear Channel Communications and it trashed uh, Infinity Broadcasting. It, it was really a, a, just a, a rant. And a maybe it was three weeks later, Barron's has a cover story and, and I'm a music buff, and I hate program radio. This wasn't motivated by anything out there. This was just me going on a jag. And then Barron's has a cover story called Losing the Signal. And it was practically a point-by-point -point <laughs> thing. And that was a moment where it dawned on me that, hey, it's not in the ether. These people are ripping you off. What Tanta did something. Well, tell us what, what she did with a similar bit of uh, thievery. Well, you know, I, well, first, I, I was working with a lot of reporters on, on their stories. Mm -hmm. I, I, and you were anonymous back then, Yeah, right? I would people would call me up, um, and, and, and uh, we would chat about a story, possible angles, uh -huh. uh, ways to write it. And, and every time they would go, I, my editor will not let me mention that you're writing a blog calculator risk. Can, can I mention that you used to be the executive of this company, use your real name? I said, no. You know, if you can't, I'll help you on stories all you want. That's there, and that goodwill over time paid off. But the, the you know, I said, no, I, I, I just want to stay anonymous. Uh, I didn't know why at the time, but it was just kind of fun for me. Right. And, and, uh, uh, you were retired. You weren't looking to, to I, I, yeah, start Yeah, I, I wasn't trying to make any money. I wasn't trying to start a war. Uh, Tanta, when, when she came on, she used to call me up. And she Furious. Would, yeah, she'd go, Bill, they ripped off your story or they ripped off my story. And, and so then she wrote a piece about how, you know, if, if, if you want to use our information, boy, you really should mention that you, where you got it from. That's just kind of standard practice in journalism. And, uh, Stop stealing. Yeah, and, and, and several journalism professors have told me they use her piece to, in, they teach it in their classes. That's great. At, at, at colleges. And, and, and it, it was immediately after that that we started getting mentioned everywhere. And, you know, a lot of the reporters I know wanted to mention us right. much sooner. And so it, it was editorial and publishing, not the actual writer. Yes. the writer. Listen, the, writers, I, I write a daily column. It's drummed into your head from day one. Always source, always link, always quote, always footnote. Right. Don't just take, and my nightmare is reading something and kind of subconsciously ferreting it away, and then it comes out, and it's like, oh, I, I ripped someone off by accident. That's my nightmare scenario. Yeah, you know, you, and, and, and I think that's always hard for a writer. I, I, I try to be very, very careful and, yeah. and link to everything. And, and uh, So uh, what, what I started doing after the Barron's piece, that to me was clearly, oh, this isn't even nuanced. This is just blatant. So I started a series of read it here first columns, and I would do side by side the two columns. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'd highlight stuff, I'd put it on the blog, and especially with the the outlets that included the author and and editors, uh, I never had that from Bloomberg, and I'm not just saying that because I'm here, but I've had it from because their sources they have a really crazy strict sourcing mechanism, but a lot of other places, I would 
take the two pieces, say, what a coincidence, I wrote this on Monday, you published this on Tuesday, I would send it to the reporter, I would send it to the editor, and I would sort of politely on the blog say, read it here first, and eventually, I think they became embarrassed. So like 04, 05, 06. Yeah. Once you got into 07 and 08, and I was, you know, I had an official job title where I was a media, a market strategist and a media spokesperson. So it was easy for me to say, hey, you don't have to quote the blog, but at least credit the source. You don't even have to link to it. But, you know, you're stealing my work product. Well, you know, they, they would, the media would mention people like Professor Jim Hamilton in San Diego or Mark mm -hmm. Tama. Um, but they'd always mention that, oh, Mark Thomas, a professor at the University of Oregon. Right. Not, it was an official title. Yeah, not that he's writing a site called The Economist View, right. <laughs> which had the information, you know. So, so you know, that that's what they, they were comfortable doing, but not the, the referencing the blogs. It took a different, but they shifted, and, and they... Sure. And, well, well, first they rolled out their own blogs. Yeah, and, and then they realized that, that it's all complimentary anyway. Right. In, in fact... Uh, we would drive traffic for them. Mm -hmm. We'd mention that, oh, hey, wait, they, you know, this guy had a good thing about this, and, and people would go read that traffic. And it got to the point where uh, journalists would send me their articles and say, hey, if you like this, could you, could you mention it or link to it? Because or, or, their editors were or saying, hey, the, get some, get some or, blog or, mentions. Yeah, and, and, and uh, it really helped them. They would, they drove when did that flip take? When did it go from, ooh, blogs we could steal with impunity and no well, one had, will know? It, it had to be in 2007. Right, two thousand seven. That's when and, you first started noticing people yeah. asking. Yeah, and 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 uh, all of a sudden we were, and it really boosted our traffic too. Did did you ever get deluged with PR pitches? Hey, would you like to meet the executive sales? Well, you get that every day. You do. <laughs> yes, I, er, I, every day. I relentlessly, relentlessly black black um, list those the people that just send yeah. ridiculous. It's one thing that it's unsolicited, but. I don't really care about this 16-year-old girl's new pop song. That's not relevant to what we're writing yeah, about. Yeah, well, you know, I, 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 I think I saw the other day there's more PR people now than there are uh, journalists in America. Is by, that true? By two to one or something. Oh. That, expla <laughs> that, explains, that explains a whole lot. Oh, my God, that's awful. That, that is a horrible, horrible thought. Um, on, on the terminal, you have this option. On the Bloomberg terminal, you have this option. Uh, so every now and then uh, a reasonable PR pitch comes in or or a reader will say, so I had Jeff Maggioncalda, who is the founder and former CEO of Financial Engines, which uh, they work with Nobel laureate Bill Sharp, and they were really one of the first entities out there to do what people are calling robo-advising today, but it was Bill Sharp and uh, an entire for way to manage 401ks through a series of intelligent algorithms. And they run like a hundred plus billion dollars. So someone who worked for the company sends an email, love the podcast, are you familiar with Magin Calda and Financial Engines? No, I never even heard of them. They're a public company, this and that. So I look them up, I'm like, how have I never heard about these guys? They are all rock stars. So that sort of pitch from somebody, yeah. that's well, fantastic. It's a, it's a relevant pitch, and it's, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that that wasn't even a, a PR person. Uh, I think it was, um, was it Corey Doctorow at Boing Boing? Said uh, he published a whole list of, so uh, all these PR shops email you, and you black blacklist the PR shop. So now you're getting these pitches from Gmail. 
So he went out and published, I think it was him. I hope I'm not getting the wrong person. A list of everybody on this list is a PR wanker who is uh, using Gmail. But they're multiplying using, so fast, you can never uh, keep up. So <laughs> here's a list. Add them to your blacklist, and you won't ever see anything from that. And I just read uh, that Apple and Google are now doing something similar on the phone side. Um, it, it's amazing how how this pro I'm so far <laughs> I've digressed so far. Let me jump back to some of the questions that we just didn't get a, a question a chance to discuss. You mentioned your your we're publishing anonymously. What made you decide to? Uh, come out from behind the cloak of uh, anonymity. Well, well, first I I started that way just because I I thought that's how you did it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just oh yeah, calculated risk. I thought it was fun. Right. You know, people don't need to know who I am. The people who I originally incentive to knew who I was. Right. The um, when Tanta came on board, Tanta was very concerned. She was very obviously very hopeful that she would recover. So she wanted to maintain, and her... she she was very concerned that if she said certain things, she may never get another job. Right, and uh, actually, people in the industry knew who she was immediately. Yeah, uh, there's only so many people that could be writing what she wrote. Right, and uh, and and then there very few of those were women. So so, uh, uh, but so you know, then as long as she wanted to stay anonymous, I stayed anonymous too. I didn't want pressure on her. Right, and so. Um, the first time my name actually came out was in the obituary in the New York Times. Really? For Tonta. No kidding. That was the first time. I believe that was the first time my name came out. Uh, and then after that, my name's in the open. So I, I went ahead and just started saying, yeah, that's and, me. And that was pretty much... Because they quoted me in the New York Times right. talking about Tonta. I can imagine. And, not, and obviously they had her real name in that article too. So I posted on the blog, Ask Calculated Risk Anything. Here's a little blast for the pet from the past. Oh, yeah. I Look pulled, at that. I pulled the old header from the Blogspot days. Oh, yeah. That, uh, I, like, I like that picture. I, took, I love I that picture. I always like that picture. The path right down the middle between I the trees. I took that up in Canada. Mm -hmm. That that's really uh, so. You guys can see that on on the big picture. So the anonymity just kind of ended. It ended when Tonta passed away. Uh, just it wasn't a conscious decision. It no, just, no. Just as, soon, as soon as she passed away, my name was in public anyway. I I you know I obviously linked to the New York Times obituary sure. article, which, uh, which was which, actually which, a lovely lovely piece. It, it was. A, they wrote a beautiful piece, and and uh, and I think this is probably the first time anyone got. An obituary for being a blogger. She was so famous. I, I think that that might very well be the case. So let's talk about uh, a related issue. What is the war on data? <laughs> oh, I wrote a piece, uh, I don't know, last month or whenever that was. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, just... I bookmarked it and saved it knowing this was coming up. Uh. By the way, for listeners... Bill lives on the other side, literally about as far away in mainland United States. You're in Newport Beach. Right. And... um. We knew you were coming in oh, five months ago, four months ago. So I started sa saving stuff. Oh, let me ask him about this. That one has been with me for a while. So let's uh, let's jump into it. What what is the war on data? Well, it's it, it, we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, is is it, there's a, a sense that the data is false by a certain group of people. Uh, like not I, just the employment, not just numbers. the employment data, but but they they you know I'd have to go back through my piece, but I forget all, all the the things I was pulling out. Some of but, it's political, some of it's with people with positions. Yeah, um, uh, I, I mean market positions or housing positions. Yeah, they're just they're, there's there are a group of people. It's just like people that reject climate change, if you mm -hmm. will. You know, 
they, Wait, are you saying climate change is real? <laughs> now um, I got to go. <laughs> I got to go rethink everything. Um, but you know, there's, there are people that are that are rejecting data and going with what they want it to be. Sure. The data want it. They want the data to be this for whatever reason, whether it's political or, or cognitive or, dissonance. Yeah, I uh, think I think some percentage of these folks don't even realize what they're doing. Some are just outright lying, but there is a healthy percentage that simply can't acknowledge reality. Well, well or, or they, they, they see their own circumstances and, and maybe believe that that's more widespread. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe for whatever reason they're seeing more inflation than the inflation data shows. And uh, because of where how, how they spend their money, sure, uh, uh, you know, no question, rent's gone up faster than than inflation. So if a rent if a rent's a big portion of somebody's monthly spending, they're going to think well, those inflation numbers are are incorrect. So you know, there's some of that. It's just that I I think people are taking that people in positions of 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 some power are taking that and or or commentators and and they're uh-huh. just attacking data right and left. And you know, if if like uh, we were talking earlier you you have to have a good system of collecting data and you have to be transparent on the data mm-hmm. and that's what we have the united states probably has the best data in the world by who's far. even close there's no one even said uh, well western europe is 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 far behind us and um, um and, at and, dinner last night a reporter who is uh, hometown in london was saying the uk has terrible data compared yeah. to the united states yeah i mean and and, and they're and they're actually very good it's, it, you know, <laughs> in the world. Well, the United States is just excellent. Right. And, and well, so, we started post-recession, or post-Great Depression in right. the 30s and 40s. This really came about um, well, from, I, from a number of people where it was pretty clear there was no data to measure progress or lack thereof. Well, you know, that anytime you have something that you want to understand, you have, first thing you have to do is measure it. Uh, and and th- because then if you it, say you make a policy change, well, how do you know if it did anything? If if you're if, Not, can't yeah, if it. you can't measure it, it's like it's like you know losing weight or something. If you don't get on the scale, how do you know if you've really lost weight? I guess you could check your I belt. Well, that's so. yeah, but that's another <laughs> measurement system. I guess it is. That yeah, makes so, a lot so, of sense. Um, yes, after the Great Depression, they started doing really collecting much better employment data. I was kind of hoping after the Great Recession that there would be an emphasis on collecting better housing data. I think they could improve the housing data. In what way? So so we have so let's go over some of the housing stats. So you have the existing home sales, which is reported by the National Association of Realtors. Uh, you have uh, new home sales, which is uh, um, Census, Census Department Bureau, um, which is sort of kind of self-reported by the builders themselves. Well, they, they, independently. So. Independently. And I, I recall writing something that you want to take a three-month average. Anytime you have an outlier to the upside or downside, like today, it invariably <laughs> flip reverses the. Fe- yeah, that's right. We had a huge upside. Oh yeah, yeah. I would, I would, I would say, hey, it's great. It's a great, great number. I, I wouldn't say, say look that. for mean reversion. Yeah, yeah. That's that's. It, and if you go back and look at the data, you can always spot the outlier and the month, the following, because what ends up happening is people. Well, they'll revise that down. Sure, and yeah. and the the whatever follows it will be a terrible month. And that'll eventually get get revised up and well, that's take a three month. That's, that's one of the average. reasons I do graphs anyway, mm-hmm. is, is because it kind of can show you where you're at. Yeah, this will be a little spike up and and. But it's within and, the range of, yeah, of it's variability. Fine. It's fine. We're, get, we're getting there anyway. I, I you know, it's only six hundred fifty thousand. That's not even that big of a number historically. So that's right. So so we have new home sales. We have existing home sales. We have contract signings. We have uh, permits for for building. Well, housing starts is a very important number. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, 
it, well, that's the, one of the biggest impacts on the economy is how many uh, for, from the housing industry as it, opposed to existing home sales. Well, where existing, existing home sales is just there's the, a the mortgage, bro- yeah, broker right, fee, swap keys. It's yeah, not a big deal. Yeah, that's the yes. The people do frequently buy a little more furniture Durable or something. Goods, right. But 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 it's it's mo- from the direct sale. That's all it is is the broker's fee and a few other fees. Right, mortgages uh, and that and adds blah, blah, to blah, the economy. Right. But when you build a new home sales, a, the whole price is, right. is is new. It's that you've added to the existing wealth of the company, the country. Uh, so it's it's a big deal. And what's so, the ratio of existing to new home sales, more or less? Uh, it's about. Eight to one. Nine, okay, nine, that's about or right. Maybe ten to one even. Uh, mm-hmm. It used to it used to be uh, closer, maybe six to one existing right. to the new. Um, there's there's been ever since the crisis uh, a lot more existing home sales. Uh, new homes got slaughtered. Well, because you're you're competing uh, against with, with the, foreclosures, right? Yeah. You're competing against dramatically. Although, let's talk a little bit about foreclosures. And and before I get to foreclosures, I I almost forgot. Multifamily homes—that's been a big uptick post-crisis, also. Yes. And is that just a reflection of rental demand, or? Well, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, one of the nice things about for multifamily is there's the demographics have been incredibly positive for them. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you had all these people moving out of, of foreclosed homes and 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 uh, looking for a place to rent. Now, a lot of those houses were bought to to rent, mm-hmm. and so that you would think, oh, well, would you, you wouldn't have this multifamily, but but you do have this huge surge in people in the 20s, and that's the main rental uh, demographic. So there's a big cohort there. They're not going to buy. There's Well, they're starting to move into the buying years. So right. We, we, a lot they're moving out of parents' basement. They're certainly renting. Are they forming households? That's another great data yeah, point. Yeah, and they will. Household formation. And they will. And, and uh, you know, the, the problem with household formation data, see, there's an area that we could really improve, mm-hmm. is everybody uses the HVS housing vacancy survey or whatever right. it is. And, and, uh, and that data is not consistent with, with the, the t- annual census or the, uh, the 10-year census. So you, and the, the Census Bureau is aware of that, but, and they're trying to figure out why that data is so inconsistent. Um, but that's something they could do a much better job of, I think, is, is uh, household so, formation. So the next president gets elected and they, they say, I want to see some better data on the economic side and they pick up the phone and say bill you mind coming to dc for a year or two we have some work for you what sort of stuff would you would you look to add refine improve or eliminate well i i think housing is is so important that i would definitely go through the methodology of each of those um one of the interesting things i think is uh for housing starts if I'm remembering this correctly, it might be new home sales. Mm-hmm. They don't include certain condos, right? Uh, so if 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 they're side by side condos, they include them. But if they're high rise con- condos, they don't. And it's really complicated, right? And 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 there's there and we're moving to where there's more of those being built. So we could have more units coming on the market than anybody's really aware. So that has to be fixed. Yeah, that that just needs to be resolved. What you know? what aren't we measuring that we should? Well. You know, I, I, I'm not completely confident in the private sources of, of uh, data. So, like, so let's talk about the National Association of Realtors, and I'll throw them under the bus because <laughs> I, I know you don't want to do that. We, we all – so everybody who blogged about real estate and economics used to make fun of the chief economists for the NAR. 
Because right. they were, from the peak in 06 to the bottom in 2010, they were just relentlessly optimistic. And I forget what that guy's name, David. David Yun. Oh, that's the current guy. Right? Um, Laria. Yeah, that's him. So he had the same book. <laughs> he wrote a book. On he Amazon. wrote a book in 2006. So the uh, the fantastic thing about that book is the same book came out two or three times. Same picture, same everything. Uh, There's a blog post somewhere about it, <laughs> and they just changed the name of it. So the first name was something like. I'll Google it and see if I can find it. Why now is the time to buy housing? It was right at the peak. And then two years later, they reissued it with a different housing. Take advantage of the decline in housing. <laughs> and then the third, the third cover was, we're all going to die, run for the hills sort of thing. Well, you and, and by the way, that was at the bottom. It was, it was quite, quite amazing. Well, you know, when we're talking about the NAR, I, you know, I have a good relationship with a lot of the industry people at uh, MBA, uh, Mortgage Bankers Association. Which I, I find to be a much more realistic Oh, those guys, group. are they're straight shooters, and, and, they, and they do an excellent job. National Association of Home Builders, same thing. The NAR, for some reason, they're more cheerleader-oriented. Because it's, it's real estate agents, and, uh, and, and uh, here it is. I actually found it. Oh. The 05, um, David Luria, are you missing the real estate boom? And then... And then um, the second version of the cover in 2006 was why the real estate boom will not bust. And then the 2007 and, – and by the way, there's a house floating and, and a, a couple with a kid looking at it in the first two editions. The third edition, all real estate is local. The house is missing. It's <laughs> that, just a that's street. That's great. <laughs> and, and that is actually – this is not fabricated. This is true. It's the same book, uh, you know, could not have been more wrong – with with three different covers, it, it it's quite it's quite uh quite astonishing. Well, but their role is a cheerleader, I right? Mean, I mean, it, National Association of Home Builder, their role they 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 the home builders really want to know what's happening, and so when they gather data from them and, and distribute it, it's real. And mm -hmm. same with Mortgage Bankers Association. I'm not saying the NARS data isn't real. They just they they spin they it spin it they right. spin it very positively, and it's not really gathered in a very uh, scientific way. So um, so isn't it based on 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 what you call it on actual closings? Don't they? Yeah, but you know they they're, they're sampling. You think it's mushy? Yeah. They're, well, they sample. What they do is they sample certain large uh, multiple listing services. And that's they based it off that, and then every what they were doing is every ten years they they would go to the census bureau, and and look at how many houses it sold, and then they would try to rejigger it, rejigger it, yeah, if you will. So and, and so I, I I to me you know we're getting to the stage where why can't we count pretty much every closing in America? I don't understand why not either. Yeah, I mean I I, I so that I know, I know that's been discussed. When you're in D.C., can we get the BLS or? I'd really, like to, Commerce Department. To yeah, take I'd, over I'd like the I'd like to see them do that. And and you know the other thing is 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 when they're calculating GDP, they're just estimating uh, the percentage that the the salesperson gets, and which has been under pressure and it's which, actually yeah, shrinking. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I I think that you know it's very possible that that's being overstated a little bit. So we really you know, who need... know who knows I really don't know nobody knows and and uh, I mean there's a lot of estimating that goes on, but that that whole industry is undergoing dramatic change right now for sure and and uh you know the online sites have just changed it dramatically so you 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 know they, they could measure that a lot better and and so we've talked about how they commit they they might be missing some con high-rise condos we the the uh 
existing home sales and commissions, I think, could be measured a lot better. Uh, house prices, I think, is, is an interesting thing. The FHA it does an excellent job, and they have an expanded series. It doesn't get the publicity it deserves. Are they tracking the same house over time? Or yes, they, exactly. It's that, a, that's what's really fascinating, it's a re- as opposed to— It's a repeat sales. But, you know, even even that, you know, is it, it, right away— what, seven years apart on average, something like that? Yeah, something like that. And But, you know, it, even that has obvious flaws. What what if the people didn't maintain it? What if they put in a new kitchen? Right, right. You know, uh, so— you Just put in a new bathroom. Yeah, they, and, they try, and, and they try to do some permitting. Oh, it, it was something permitted. But you know, a lot of people put in a new bathroom without permitting it, and so. Pro- and if you so, in my town of Oyster Bay, unless you're changing the footprint of the house or running a natural gas line in, like I'm in the midst of doing, you don't need a permit. You right. need a permit for the natural gas. You could redo a kitchen. You could redo a bathroom. You don't need a permit. If you ch- if you extend the house, if you change the footprint, if you replace a make a deck bigger. Uh, and it impinges on the neighbor. You you need a permit well, for that. Well, you know, it depends on what you do. Obviously, I think in any area you can retile your bathroom. Sure. Without a permit, uh, I think if you move the electricity around, yep, change the plugs, whatever. I think most places would require a permit. Uh, Makes you, sense. You have to have the electrical inspected to make sure mm-hmm. it was done to code. To code, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, but but a lot of people do that without permits. So there's, because you don't want to pay an increased tax rate, you pay a fine at the end five years later. Yeah. So instead of paying $1,000 more a year, you pay $250. Well, they never, they never even catch them. So. Sometimes you need a CO, a certificate of occupancy, when you do the sale, so people run around before a, a closing in order to make yeah. all that. Um, on the spin from the National Association of Realtors, I'm going way back. 2007, there was a quote in the Palm Beach Post. Some realtors are grumbling about prices falling. Guess who they're not falling. Guess who they're blaming. A growing number of realtors in Florida are frustrated with the state and national realtors group efforts to spin the market as one that is strengthening and where home prices are stabilizing. We people can customers continue to list their homes at prices that are unrealistic. And as a result, Sales volumes and thus commissions continue to be depressed. So the net impact of the NAR spin in 07 was that agents were saying to people, these prices are unrealistic, and they're saying, well, I read in the paper things are getting better. Yeah, we, That's the problem. That's what the home builders don't tolerate, but the agents but on the, a national level have, have messed with. Yeah, you know, but there's there's more than the, the National Association of Realtors there. They're but complaining how, about state how, and, and if, national. If, if you own yeah, I well they are clearly. But if you if you own a home mm-hmm. and it's pretty much equivalent to your neighbor and he sold it for six hundred thousand and the agents tell you, Well, you're only gonna get five hundred thousand for yours, you think that agent's crazy. And and yet that might have been a f- very fair price, or maybe even too high. How many times did you have that conversation with people? And they said, "When did the neighbor sell the house?" Well, they sold it in '05. Well, it's '08, and we have five million foreclosures yeah, going exactly. on. Exactly. Well, so had, if, if you, you want to sell it at that price, get in a time machine, go back to '05. Yeah. You get that price. Yeah, and th- but you you have to. It does take extra effort. You do have to explain that to them and go through. I do know a family member, uh, my mom. Who uh, wanted to sell in like 2007 and uh, and moved to a retirement community and it worked out great for her. But I I went down. We went looked at the local houses and they were the inventory was really expanding. And I said let's underprice everybody. Right. And and uh, and we sold it right away. 
And, and, and you know what? That guy's got a nice house, and it's worth more than he paid for it. So well, he, Ten he, years later, sure. Ten, yeah, he's, he's fine, and, he, and, you know, he loves the house. And, uh, but my mom got that money out. It made her, her retirement easy, you know. Uh, but other people were sticking to their prices, you know, and, or chasing them down, which is probably the worst thing you can do. I did that with a house we tried to buy, and thanks to technology, you could look at every listing price— and then you find out, so it, it's here, and then it's 100000 lower, and then it's 100000 lower. And, <laughs> and you're watching them, but they're 100000 or more behind the market. So they're just following it down and not selling it and just creating this paper trail. Well, chasing a market is one of the worst things you can do. Like you you got to skate to where the puck's going to be, not to where it was exactly. five minutes ago. Exactly. And, real, you know, selling a house is so emotional. Hey, we lived here for 20 years. We raised our kids here. How could this only be worth X? It's worth 3X. Right. Well, to you, but you've already bought it. You got to. It's coming to somebody who doesn't have the memories. You got to get realistic. So we mentioned foreclosures before. Let's talk a little bit about the the foreclosure crisis way back when. Um, what took place uh, during the from the 06 peak to 2010, 2011 bottom, more or less. Um, and what did we do right as a country, and what did we do wrong with that? Oh, well, I, you know, I, I personally think we, some areas of the country are still trying to, to recover. So New Nevada, Jer- New Jersey, right? Uh, but <laughs> but that has that New Jersey has its own specific. Yeah, but but you know, but be, if you go and look, the states that have been slowest to recover all have judicial foreclosure systems. That's taken forever. Yeah, and, and you know, about half the states are judicial. You got to go to court. Right. The other states, it's 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 a straightforward system. What about the rocket courts that Florida set up? Yeah, I you know I, I guess they've helped. Supposed some. to be horrible, by the way. Well, they, yeah, I'm they, sure because people have complained that they haven't even gotten noticed. They've come home and well, you know, they're, they're, it it really didn't help. It made things obviously much much worse for everybody. That the mortgage industry was cheating on the foreclosures constantly. Yeah, and so Pam and, Bondi, AG of. Uh, of Attorney General of Florida got elected and stopped uh, with a lot of real estate developer and real estate owners' backings and stopped all the mortgage foreclosure cheating investigations that her office, well, her predecessor had run. Yeah, well, that, not my favorite AG in America. Yeah, but that you know, to me that that was that made things a much much worse. Is is if if they had just followed the rules, right, and and done things correctly. What do you do when you can't find a note? We're missing the note. Now what? Well, you, you can always go recreate it, though. I mean, they, they... But they were paying... There was actually a it, company... It cost you a lot of money. That's one of the things that Tonto was talking about. They they had cut the back rooms so much that they... Right. They, that, that whole... They, they just kind of assumed, well, we're never going to have foreclosures. You know, <laughs> whereas when, when Tonto was working in that industry, that was very important to check every file to make sure every file was completely correct. Mm-hmm. You know, you had all every single piece of document, which is what they do again today. You so, know. so what about? Let's talk a little bit about MERS, the Mortgage Electronic Registry. Um, I, I, I like the idea. I think it's great. really yeah. See, I think that it's a scam, and it exists to not pay recording tax or transfer tax county by county. They've been sued by a number of people. Well, I, I yeah, yes, but, but you know. and it allows you to to put. You could sell a mortgage so many times that supposedly you're tracking it through this electronic registry, but you weren't. There were so many times well, where we well, didn't, couldn't tell who owned well, the house. Well, first of all, who owned it, the note. It, it was implemented poorly. So Terrible. Once it's implemented poorly, it's a bad system. Right. So you, you, you don't, there's no argument for me on that. The general idea I kind of like. Well, if uh, it was done with full 
congressional authority and local well, authority, but that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the idea of that that you because because what they wanted to do was put the mortgage the mortgages into mortgage backed security. Sure, and, nothing and, wrong with that. Yeah, no, it's nothing wrong with that. But That's it's got to you can't have just some random company saying we're gonna. In my opinion, we can't bypass the local authority because it's faster, easier, cheaper. I, I'm convinced that MERS is an underwritten story of the crisis. Okay. But for MERS, we may not have had as deep and bad a kind. You couldn't have cranked out as many houses and oh, as many. Oh security no, yeah, dust. you need you needed to, that, yeah, yeah. So so that was that was, you know it was a little bit of a grease enabler, but it wasn't sure. a cause. So sure, no, definitely not a cause, but definitely an enabler. God, there's so many questions I haven't gotten to, and I want to make sure I leave leave some time to our standard questions. Um, so here's an interesting question a reader had asked. Ask McBride what policy choices he would make to improve the lot of the bottom 50%, even if it hurt corporate America. Well, uh, now, now, you know, I, I think that one of the key things is, is you got to have wages up. You have to get wages up for the lower income workers. So how do we do that? And so well, the, 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 Two, one thing you can do is you can mandate a higher minimum wage. Right. Well, uh, that'll help a ton. How many people earn minimum wage? It's, it's not that many, but it pushes up the people that are just above minimum wage. Sure. Too. I guess everybody moves it, it, up it, it, slightly it moves at the up, bottom. It moves up. And the, but but the, I think the key is more bargaining power for workers of some sort. So that yeah. means stronger unions. Yeah. Well, we've crushed the unions. Yes. Other than the public unions, um, which which have plenty of problems still, you know, I mean, because they have all these pensions that are crazy. Right. So, so with the public unions, I'm kind of like, well, we, we should take a lot of effort and 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 work on those the pensions. But but if when we're talking about improving a lot of the, lo- the lower 50 percent, I think uh, getting some sort of bargaining for workers um and I, you know, whether they're unionized or some other way, I'm I'm not a labor expert, but I do think that that's where one of the keys. The the fall of the it may be a coincidence, but the fall of the strength of union, unions and the fall in middle class income is is seems to be quite the coincidence. One would imagine they're related. Oh, they're they're definitely related. <laughs> There's no question. There's and, no... and and raising the minimum wage is going to help some. So you know, there's a policy that we can do. Uh, I I don't think that there's a big negative impact for for I mean for you know in most areas especially in the coastal well if you areas. look right if you look in the uh, Seattle and Portland and San Francisco and L A they could raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars yeah, and ba- it's fine basically may not to, work in the heartland yeah basically in L A you had to pay that anyway right so um, it, well it, you see Walmart McDonald's raising the minimum that's telling you yeah that, they're having trouble getting workers yeah so yeah. so it's it's ha- you can either let the market do it or speed it along and and do it legislatively i know a lot of people hate I, I the mean, mandate yeah i mean working for the minimum wage is pretty minimal right and <laughs> you're at even at at $15 you're still at a at a 40 hour week you're you're more or less right at the poverty level, depending on how many kids. You I don't have. know how you live in L.A. or New York. You can't. It's it's impossible. You're yeah. taking a second job, working off the books. It's it's rough. Uh, interesting question that came in from another reader. Um, we keep hearing about quote the next subprime. Where do you see excesses in the credit market that might be the next subprime? I you know right now it's I I think we're okay 
in most areas. Um, I mean, a lot of people focus on the auto loans, but you know, auto loans are e- auto car. The cars are easy to repossess. The technology <laughs> that's built into it now is you buy a car if you don't have a good credit rating. I wrote a column about this a few months ago, and they build in a remote kill switch. So you miss a payment, they shut the car off. Yeah, and people. You want that car? You got to wire the money in. Yeah, in in, uh, in L.A. You want your car bad. For sure. Cause that's how you get to work or get to anything. So, you know, people pay. They, during the foreclosure crisis, people were paying their car loans, but they weren't paying their house loans. The, the story was you'd pay your visa, you'd pay your car loan, you would skip the student loan, you would skip the mortgage. Because yes. what yes. are they going to do? It's going to take three years. Yeah, to, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not that concerned about student loans either. I, I think that there's things we can do. Um, lower interest rates. For I, sure. I, 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 you know, when I went to school, um, you know, it really dates me, but I, I paid, I went to U- University of California, Irvine, paid $200 a quarter to go to school. I went to SUNY Stony Brook. My first semester was semester, not even quarter, two semesters a year, 450 Yeah. So, you know, uh, I could go, I paid my way through school. I could mm-hmm. work on the weekends. Right. Pay my rent, pay my my tuition. I think that that's kind of weird. now it's twelve thousand a semester. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, if you can't work on the weekends to go to school, uh, it makes life completely different. Sure. You know, not everybody did that. Luckily, a lot of people when I was young, their parents paid it because it wasn't that much either. Right. You know? But so you know, there's I I do like the idea of making some education less expensive. Makes sense. What um what asset classes do you see as expensive or is that something you really don't pay close attention to? Um, you know, I, I, I don't. It's not something I don't write about. Mm-hmm. But you know, basically everything is at least fairly valued now. I, I don't see. You know, like in 2012, it was clear to me that if you should be out buying as much real estate as you could. Um, the uh, in 2009, you should be jumping in as hard as you can into the stock market. Right. Uh, so, I mean. So, what do you do in 2016? Um. Well, earlier this year, I did buy. I put some money into the stock market mm-hmm. when we had that nice. We're at record highs here. Yeah, and, and so that was well. You know, luckily, I'm, I'm not sitting on any cash right now. I don't know exactly what I would do today. You know, it's funny. One of the things is I don't know what I'm going to do until I need to to do it exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that I don't give advice on, on <laughs> investing. <laughs> on a daily basis. You know, back when, because uh, we were talking about the, the commenting, and I, I participated in this uh, site called Silicon Investor for a little while. Uh-huh. And, uh, they, know, by the way, they came to fame in the late 90s screaming bubble, and they were right eventually, but getting yeah. the timing on that is really but challenging. We, you know, we would talk uh, with some, you know, as, as happens on every commenting thing. At first, it was really good. And uh, we talk about different stocks. And, and uh, w- w- one of the things I discovered at the time is I could mention 10 stocks that I thought were good. And nine of them would do great. And one of them would really underperform. And then peop- every time I would say anything, people come back, weren't you the one who liked XYZ? Yes, out of the ten stocks I mentioned, X Y Z. Yeah, and after a while, you go, I, I'm tired of this. You know, uh, I you know, let's, let's chase experience. let's chase away all the good commenters, right? And, and just get it to the point where it's just garbage, and that's what they did. the The nice thing about you have an MBA. The nice thing about law school is you learn the rules of rhetoric and debate, and so you could very, I can very quickly identify. That's a straw man argument. That's an ad hominem attack. That's arguing from extreme. That's argue- you like you start to notice all the not and comments are just 
They're that, all that. that yeah. it, it's just a place where logic and, and reasoning go to die. It's, it's unfortunate. <laughs> so last question before I get to my standard questions I ask everybody. So you said you don't see a recession anytime um, soon, and I never ask people for what, where, what's your favorite stock, what, what's your, where's the market could be, what's your forecast. So I'm reluctant to ask this as a forecasting question, but how long? So I'm going to phrase it slightly differently. How long do you see this economic expansion continuing? Is this something that could go on for 18, 24, 36 months? Well, or are we closer to the end of the cycle than I, we are to the beginning? Oh, I, w- I would say we're probably closer to the end than the beginning because mm-hmm. we've been uh, – this Seven is years. Seven years. Will it go another seven years? It could, actually, because mm-hmm. of, because of the slow growth. Right. I don't think that's going to happen. The ongoing deleveraging it's, yeah. uh, and I, the yeah, ultra-low rates. Yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, you look around and you, the, look at mortgage equity withdrawal. This uh-huh. is, it's still basically zero. You know, people are really yeah. People you we used to we used to look at that data point. It was in it was enormously you know people were pouring money out of their houses. Unbelievable. To, 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 you know, and and yeah, we're I think we're I think we're right at that starting to turn positive again. But that can go a long time positive. Mm-hmm. So you know, the, and the economy. So so I you know as far as the the cycle, I I think we're mid-cycle somewhere, maybe late mid-cycle, I'm of that camp. Mm-hmm. That, uh, Sixth uh, inning. I hate that uh, metaphor. No, but, but no, yeah, but I'm, I'm of the camp that the uh, recoveries don't, expansions don't die of old age. They right. die for other reasons. And so we need to see some real excesses. Um, you know, some people, it's easy to point out excesses mm-hmm. uh, you, or, or, or imagined excesses. You could say, well, look at the bond market. The, the bond yields are so low. Clearly, that's going to blow up someday. Been hearing but, that for seven, eight years. Yeah, but, I, but I'm, not, I'm, not so much, I'm not in that camp. I, 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 I think that we're not seeing the excesses yet. We're not seeing the inflation that, re, that the Fed really would need to fight. I, I think that's going to be slow to come. Um, the demographics is improving in the U.S., um, you know, the forget about the baby boomers; they're moving on. Uh, but we're getting that nice group in the in the twenties, early thirties, Gen X, Gen Y, yeah, millennials, and and those, and and you know, there there could be a little bit more inflation as they compete for products. Uh, but but uh, you know, I don't see it picking up dramatically like we saw in the seventies at all. So, all right, so let's jump into my standard questions. You already told us about your background. Who are your early mentors? Um. As far as economics, as far as anything, oh, uh, I I was very fortunate to have some very good CEOs that I worked with. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Don Judson, Don Judson at Vitalcom, uh-huh. was an absolute brilliant guy. Uh, I was kind of the number two guy there for for a number of years. Uh, you know, he he just he just would see things, and and uh, and so he, he was great and. Uh, uh, Don Barry, two Dons, the two Dons, uh-huh. uh, was at the at the te- uh, telecommunications company. He was the founder of that, and just another brilliant, positive person. You know, who just was a hard worker. Uh, both those guys really promoted my career. Um, so yeah, I, th- those those two guys I owe a lot to. The the two Dons. Yeah, the two um, Dons. How about investors? Any particular investor influence your approach to investing, be it real estate, stocks, whatever. Um, some Warren Buffett. So, Can't go wrong with that. Yeah. So uh, could do worse. <laughs> yeah. On on real estate, you know, a little bit my dad. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh, 
you know, he, that's nice. My dad, my dad had, my dad's still around. He's ninety four. So he got to see the blog blow up. He got to see oh, yeah, your, yeah. all of your post career success. He must yeah. have appreciated that. Uh, it's funny because must it's, have tickled him. It's the only well, it's the only thing he ever really understood that I did. Really? <laughs> he come and see. He come and look at the heart monitors and go, "What the heck is this all about?" That's hilarious. You know? But but you know, when I started writing the blog, he he understood that. And uh, but he you know he had he had some funny sayings. One was uh, the deal of the century comes along every year. Right. So, so you know you don't have it's to. It's like jump. a hundred year flood comes along every five yeah, years. Yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to jump on anything. You, there'll be another good opportunity right. six months from now or a year from now. He goes, oh yeah, right. the deal of the, the deal of the century comes along every year. That, that's great. <laughs> um, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books, be they economic or otherwise fiction or nonfiction? Well, I just finished reading. Um, well, I can. I'll mention a few economic books. Sure. Uh, um, a book called "Big Shifts Ahead." Big it, shifts ahead. Yeah, I don't have the whole title, but uh, that's the first. I'll post three. it on the site. Yeah, it's a. It's. I don't know if it's available yet. I read a preview. It's by uh, Chris Porter and John Burns, uh, both real estate guys, and uh, Chris Porter's a demographic guy, and. Uh, and this is really driven by demographic. Like Harry Dent used to be Mr. Demography. Yeah. That well, was his well th- this book is about the shifting demographics and what it means for businesses and primarily for the real estate industry and housing. And, you enjoyed it. And, and, and yeah, because it's it's something I think that, that's very, very important to understand. And, uh, and you know, what how people are going to be building different projects. Um, and I think they did a really good job. It was, it was, it was very interesting to me. Um, what else? I really liked. Um, uh, uh, let me think. Uh, what's uh, the House of Debt? House of Debt. Uh, uh, I, I could Sufi see. And, I and, could and, see it sitting on my yes, bookshelf uh, uh, um, on the Amir crisis Sufi page. And, yep. Yeah, and uh, and uh, Doctor. I, I forget. She's in California somewhere, right? Or or uh, he? Yeah. He. He. He's. No, I think he's in the Midwest somewhere. I'm thinking of a, a different book then. Yeah. But it's got like the torn sort of page of... of uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember what the cover looks like. But House of Debt, you can look that one up. House of Debt. All right. Okay, and that... that what they did with those two, two professors, what they did is they, they looked at micro data in, uh, available in each city to see how much um, people, how much household debt people had and how that related to the, the the strength of the recovery or the depth of the recession, and it was very very interesting, and very insightful. So you know, the more people could borrow, obviously, the more more trouble they got into. House of debt: How they and you caused the Great Recession, well, I didn't and how cause we it. can <laughs> prevent it from happening again. Amir Sufi and Atif Mian. Yes. All right, and the other one was called Big Shifts. Big Shifts Ahead, Ahead by Porter and Burns. John Burns and Chris Porter, Big Shifts Ahead, Demographic Clarity for Business. That's not coming out till October. Give me one more. What else have you read that you've really enjoyed? Oh, uh, uh, The Kershack, Ben Bernanke. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought that was fun. I, it, it, you know, it's interesting because it's just from his perspective. Now, you and I were writing about, you know, anything that, that's um, about the crisis— the Courage to Act, a Memoir of a Crisis and Its Aftermath. Yeah, anything about the crisis, I always disagree with something, and I'm sure right. you would too. But that's, but I like to see other people's perspective of Did you it. En- really enjoy this? Because this book has been sitting on a shelf, 
untouched, unloved. <laughs> not even I have. I, I I didn't I didn't read all of it, but I read several chapters. Enjoyed not it. not even in my queue. It's like, do I really? Although I will say, I've I've really enjoyed his blog. Yeah, and, or, or, and or, I or, like or, the po- the the. I like the post-crisis Bernanke better than the pre-crisis. He was too blasé and too willing to, you know, rubber stamp what Greenspan was doing pre-crisis, but in the midst of the crisis and, and after, well, could, when, couldn't we, have had a better guy there. No, well, no, when he stepped up, we were very fortunate that he yes. was there. Yes, and I was a big critic prior. Yeah. And in hindsight, during the crisis, really, you want a guy who's a student of the Great Depression well, when he, you're in the you midst know, he, of it. He was slow to react to what yes. was happening, but then once I think one day he woke up and said, "Holy cow, you know!" And and this everything I've studied all my life, it's happening right now as I'm sitting here. You it, know, it's a it's really quite amazing. Yeah. So you know, we we I remember when he first got appointed by George W. Bush, and I thought, oh three something like that. No, it must have been. He must have taken not as over. not as chairman, but just on the board. He was CEA Council of Economic Advisors. Yeah, chair. and that you know. And that teed and, him up to go on the Fed. Yeah, and that and you FOMC. know, I, I felt sorry for him when he was the CEA because he was saying things that really didn't make sense in my view, and I thought, oh man, he there he's got to be political a little bit, right? Here. Very. And, and but once he got, but I'm still really happy that he got appointed because you could have got anybody, right? And, and uh, uh, we could have got somebody really bad who felt like the Fed shouldn't do anything, right? Right? And and uh, there are lots of people who think just let it run its course. It'll be really painful, but then we'll come out the other end cleansed and better. Well, you know, and, and I, you know, you kind of understand that, except for... It's when, not realistic. It's not realistic, especially when you look at all the people that are seriously injured during the, right. the, the downturn. And, and um, I mean, instead of, instead of peaking at 10%, the unemployment rate might have peaked at 20 or 25%. Right. And then, and it's not only those twenty or twenty-five percent that get hurt; it's the the next ten or fifteen percent that are pulling way back. They're afraid they're going to lose right. their jobs too. It's the I'm, paradox of thrift. Yeah, and 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 then and then you get, I mean, you get you get suicides, uh, divorces. It's awful. The whole thing. Is yeah, terrible. yeah. I mean, you can't you can't let that go on for five, seven years and hope it's going to resolve itself. And besides, I think it, you know, Keynes kind of pointed out that you've got a problem, and it may never ever resolve itself. Right. But but you know, if if the if the Fed can step up and you can get some fiscal policy. Policy. Gee whiz, we turned it around. And from a financial crisis perspective, we turned this around better than just about anybody ever. The, re- the rest of the world certainly is still lagging behind the U.S. All right, last two questions before they throw us out of the studio. We've been here for almost two hours. So a millennial or a recent college grad comes up to you and says, I'm interested in blogging, real estate, um, writing. What sort of advice would you give them? Go ahead. <laughs> That's have, the... have fun. You know, look, I, people ask me how I built my traffic. I could ask you how you built your traffic. In my relentlessly position, through ten years of brutal work, I just you become an overnight sensation. Yes, I just wrote and wrote and wrote, and and people started picking up things. People liked what I wrote, picked it up, spread it around. You know, posts go viral. Right. And and uh, you know, so I I don't. People ask me, well, how did you advertise? No, I didn't. How did Never. you spread the word? I didn't. Um, Ever know, send out emails to journalists that hey, this is an interesting piece. You never, should look at it. Never. So I've never, I've never advertised it at all. So I mean, th- I guess I'm advertising it now. But, but yeah, but you're talking about after a decade of putting it out. This this is less advertising than a a uh, victory lap slash retrospective. <laughs> it's not like oh, look at look at Bill out um, promoting. Look at him hyping calculated risk. I, I I've asked you. 
full disclosure, how many times have I said, hey, let, let's get you, let's do something, let's talk about this. I recall linking to you back in, I don't know, 05, 06, I was doing the Well, that's probably where my traffic came from. Right. I was, <laughs> first, I was doing the, the link fest for the street.com, and then I was doing them on the big picture. And I recall, and you sent like a really lovely email. I have it somewhere. Oh wow! Hey, thanks for the link, but you, you know, you crashed our site. You took it offline, <laughs> and I, it wasn't like I was getting that much traffic. But in the scheme of bloggers, if you were getting a thousand a day, that was a lot. You know, yeah. way back in the early days. But so, your advice to someone who wants to start today, this late date, covering housing, or well, you yeah. would say go for it. Yeah, I think I think anybody can. I think anybody can do it. If I mean, if they're if they have something to add, they're. I mean. You just have to work at it and be and put up with the low traffic to start. Right. And um, you know how how we, how do you? It's not. I wouldn't consider it a money maker. I mean, if it's if it's somebody's career, but if it's somebody's sidelight, um, something they do because they're passionate about they're, it. They're and passionate it's fun. about it, and they've got something another real job, which is what really most bloggers do. Right. right? They, What's up with you and Zero Hedge? You've you've written some some critical things. He's uh, not happy with me. Oh, I I. I I, you know, I have no relationship with him at all. I just think the site's a joke. Really? Yeah. Because every now and then there's something of interest. Okay. Because he has an expertise in derivatives, what have you. But the but rest, how do you, how, you know, how? But you can't find it. It's yeah, so yeah, overrun I, I, with I, I, craziness. I mean, you know, I I only have so much time every day. I think this is a, a good lesson for everybody. Is you have to you have to learn the sites or the the newspaper journalists that you want to read. Mm-hmm. And and every once in a while you branch out and and pick up other people and and then decide whether you want to keep reading them. You know, if I see John Hilsenrath at the at, or Nick Tamaris, sure, I, 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 love I, both I, their work at, at the Wall Street Journal. I read their article. I, it's just automatic. You know, I read everything by Paul Krugman. I read, you know, um, I I have my group of people that I always read, and I I branch out and read other people too. Mm-hmm. And then and sometimes they fall into that group, and and then I'll start reading them if I see their name. Oh yeah. I got but I think everybody has to have that filter. I can't waste my time going through a hundred posts to find the one little nugget. Right. Um and and you know, uh way back when I, I don't I don't think I've been to the Zero Hedge site in five years. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I have friends who are always sending me stuff and one out of five things are, are, are kinda interesting. The um I know a lot of people read it. I don't know why. The, I, and you know what? Maybe they're better today. You know, maybe maybe I maybe nah, I Yeah, I've been I've been blaming Zero Hedge <laughs> I've been blaming that site for hedge fund underperformance for the past five years. They've been relentlessly negative. They missed a giant move in equities. Well, they were they were saying short uh, in March of two thousand nine when the that, market would hit six six six. Good time. And uh, and they've never changed as far as I for you know I was I used to go to, for entertainment purposes. Well, well you know only. back when back when I first started and and I'm sure this is true for you too is that. Um, there was kind of like camaraderie among the blogs. Absolutely, and so, 100%. And so if I saw something wrong or on, on another side or they saw something wrong on mine, I, we would exchange emails. Hey, and FYI, it was, sure. Yeah, yeah, hey, I think that maybe you're looking at this. And, and it was great because then I could correct my article. Um, I Zero Hedge came along, you know, they, they didn't call the recession at all. Obviously, no. they didn't call the recovery. They didn't see the housing bubble. Then none of that because they started— They start, came out way after. Yeah, they came out way after, and it was all gloom and doom, yellow journalism— but like somebody sent me an article from it and I said, Oh, a new site, you know, and I, I read it and I said, Well, you I, I sent the guy an email 
and uh, and I got the rudest reply, <laughs> and I went I went what the hell? I here I am, reaching out. I'm not I'm not publishing it on my site. I'm not embarrassing these guys. They they just just FYI. Just this FYI, is they, they, you can't you really can't look at the data this way. You need to do this, and it's something I knew really well. Go jump. And, and and you know screw you kind of response and and oh, okay fine you know I you know I had a, a lunch with Chris Whalen set up a lunch with him and me and a bunch of other people because I was interested in the derivative stuff he was writing about was excellent and the high frequency trading stuff he had some really good insights and then everything all kind of uh, went to just a degree of negativity and well be, well being negative drives traffic for a lot of people. You know, I guess you know you if you if you're constantly bearish. I, I always say that blogs have an incentive to be bearish because it drives traffic. It's kind of like you know Wall Street analysts have an incentive to be bullish. You know, and and uh, the, it's the rare great economist on Wall Street who can say we've got a problem. Um, and it's it's you know the very few bloggers are willing to go both ways. So know? let's let me ask you my very last question, my favorite question. And that is, what is it that you know about real estate, about mortgages, about writing and blogging that you wish you knew back in 2005 when you launched the site? Well, I, I wish I'd met Tanta two years earlier as far as mortgages. Uh, I, everything I know, I, I learned from her. So mm -hmm. uh, as far as real estate, you know, I it was it was so much fun early on reading through all the technical documents at all of the sites that would provide that as to how they gathered their data and so i really learned a lot uh, if i'd known that a little earlier maybe i could have put all the pieces together just a little bit earlier um you know i i, I it was it was a weird thing in 2005 to me i could clearly see that the market was overvalued that the, there was really bad mortgages but i kept asking myself well why why are they making these mortgages to people that are never going to pay them? I personally would never loan money to people that aren't going to pay me. You know, I it took me two or three years to finally really understand how they were rating based on two, 1990s methodology. The methodology had changed. Mm -hmm. How that how you know the, the, you had this real uh, originate to to distribute model that that was just pulling. You know, people were investing in these things that they thought were AAA. And they paid a, a higher yield than other triple A's. Well, gee whiz, you can sell the, uh, you can sell an infinite amount of that because people can can arbitrage between the triple A's. You know, I mean, it, it it's crazy how that whole worked. Once you realized how that whole mechanism worked, then it was obvious how it happened. You know, I just couldn't understand originally why they make loans that were never going to get paid. <laughs> well, if you can, my my favorite, I did a ton of research for Bailout Nation. One of my favorite little research discoveries were that. The primarily located in California, private sector mortgage lenders who would then sell it to Wall Street would sell it to Wall Street with a 90-day warranty. They would guarantee that this mortgage won't default, this 30-year mortgage won't default for three months. Yeah. Now, stop and think about how misaligned those incentives are. I have a question for you that's not on my list. I have to ask because I've been thinking about it. Are we ever going to see a calculated risk book from you? I don't think so. Really? Because I think that could be really interesting. I, it looks like a lot of work to me. You, you're, it's a lot of work. You, yeah. But I, when you're I, done, Bella, it's Bella like, Nation oh, I has, have a PhD. That's yeah. what it feels like. Oh, okay. Well. I think people would buy the calculated risk well, book, and I think it could be influential. That's very nice of you to say. I mean, so 
You Bill, know, you know how much work goes into it. I know. So uh, hey, listen, it's been five years, and I've been thinking about when doing you gonna write another, another book. Well, I, I'm okay. just now five years later. I'm like, all right, maybe I'll start thinking about. Well, you could you could say so five you, years. I'm sorry, it's seven years later. But you I, know, your master's in business. Uh, you've you've had over a hundred interviews on my list. That's yeah. I, I've had I mean, two different publishers reach out. Three different publishers reach out to me. Hey, would you like to do this as a book? Sure. Yeah, uh, I think it'd be a great book. It, it could be fun. Yeah. Bill, thank you so much for for doing this. This has just been really fascinating. For for those of you who listened, I, I apologize for babbling. I know Bill for so long, and literally, it's the first time we've actually sat down and chatted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was very chatty, and it's because when you know someone virtually for twelve years, and you finally get to sit down and talk, you feel compelled to uh, to hold up your half of the conversation. For those of you who have enjoyed this conversation, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 100-plus conversations we've had, which is in itself a mind-blowing data point. I would be remiss if I did not thank my producer and today's recording engineer, Charlie Vollmer, our booker, Taylor Riggs, and Mike Batnick, who is the head of research. Uh, We love your comments, feedbacks, criticisms, and, and... other assorted uh, responses, be sure and write to us at mibpodcasts at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.